Welcome to the Impact Investing Podcast from Circa 5000. I'm Matt Latham. And I'm Tommy Gillicuddy. Remember, nothing in this podcast is financial advice, and when investing, your capital is at risk. Enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of the Impact Investing Podcast. This is episode 20. And today we're talking about something that Teresa Coffey, the Secretary of State for the Environment, described as just a gathering of people in Egypt. (laughs) It is, of course... COP27, sponsored by Coca-Cola. And uh, Tom, as always, I'll come to you. Tell us about COP. <laughs> Just a small gathering of 44,000 registered participants in Egypt. That can't be good for the climate, 44,000 people. Um, yes, yeah, so Conference of the Parties this week and next week in Egypt, um, which is the big annual climate change conference from the UN. Um, It's a little bit of history um, to set the scene. So the first conference of the parties that was set up in 1992, the Earth Summit in Rio, um, hosted by the United Nations Framework Convention of Climate Change, which just rolls off the tongue, UNFCCC. Um, And the COP is the supreme decision-making body of the UNFCCC. Um, And if you think there's a few big cops that stand out in history. The first one being um, the the COP3 in Copenhagen in 1997, which established the Kyoto Protocol. And that was the establishment of the first climate change targets for uh, for, for nations. And it was the first admission um, or broad admission that it was man-made greenhouse gas emissions that were, that were causing climate change. And then fast forward to COP21, which was in Paris in 2015, which we've, we've talked a little bit about when, when we talked about the, um, the conversations we had on ExxonMobil and uh, the, uh, the impact they've had on the climate change debate over the years. Paris was the, was the, was the first time there was a legally ratified uh, climate agreement um, that limited warming to two degrees, ideally 1.5 degrees, um, but two being the, being the limit. And then we had the, the, the COP26, which was Glasgow last year, um, where nations once again committed to 1.5 degrees of warming. And so we're now at COP27 um, and hoping for more, hoping for progress, but set against what I think is a, is a, is a very difficult geopolitical and global backdrop um, uh, as we, that we find ourselves in now. Yeah, and there's, a, there's always obviously a lot of scepticism which about these, um, these conferences. There is every year. There's a lot of... Uh, they're accused of greenwashing, which yep. is what we spoke about <laughs> last week. Um, Greta Thunberg obviously is not going this year yep. um, and didn't actually attend the conference last year. She protested uh, outside the conference. Um right. And there's a lot of skepticism that basically it's just a lot of talking and not a lot of doing, yep. and that the the targets set get missed consistently. Yep. And you know, anything that you get 27 meetings into and <laughs> you haven't really solved the issue is probably, <laughs> you know, you can see why some skepticism yep. would exist. With all this skepticism, what is the point of the of the cop, Tom? What's the what's the sort yeah, of thought process? I think it's a really valid question. Um, so I think you know. The, the positive spin, you know, the, the theory of it, and I think a lot of this is still largely true, is it's, it's, it's kind of the only thing we have uh, at large to get every country in the world together to discuss uh, climate change and the issues that they're facing. And it's, it's the, probably the biggest place and the most important aspect of it is it's where small nations can speak to big nations yeah. about what's happening in their countries, what they need from them, and what, uh, and what action it's going to take to, to help them out. And it's one of the only places where I think the, the big nations, US, uh, China, you know, um, EU, European countries, India, um, 
can be held to account and kind of be dragged forward to put action in place that um, that benefits the, the countries that are at the coalface of this, that are the most um, the most exposed to climate change problems. And so um, I think it's the only thing that we've got. I think that's the point. I mean, the criticism of it is greenwashing. It's sponsored by Coca-Cola. There's a lot of hot air. Not a lot happens. People miss the targets they set. That is all very, very valid. But I don't think there's anything else, really. Yeah, and I think, you know, although although there's probably admission now that the 1.5 degree thing has gone. Yeah. Um, you know, the phrase of the last one in Glasgow was keep 1.5 alive. Yeah. COP only kicked off Sunday. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're recording this Tuesday morning. Um, and there's already a sort of widespread recognition that that 1.5 degrees target has gone. Yeah. Um, but there has been progress made to point to, to date. And the, the thing that you said there about smaller nations being represented, you know, the Prime Minister of Barbados is on the front page of the, yeah. the Guardian this morning, you know, they're, yeah. they're getting the headlines and, mm. and is being heard on a world stage talking about climate change. So, yeah. you know, that's a country with a population of about 300,000 people. Yeah. Um, doesn't often get, you know, heard or pushed forward on the, on the world stage. So yeah. it's a, you know, it is that opportunity and the progress has been that, you know, we've gone from probably a four to five degree warming scenario to more like now probably a two and a half degree warming scenario based on what, yeah, what were, you know, what the, the consensus of laws and commitments and various other things are, are yeah. looking at now. Yeah. I think, I think we'll, we'll go on to, you know, what we can hope for, what we can expect um, from this year's COP. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's always important to kind of establish where we are today in terms yeah. of what is the current situation with, with uh, climate change and, and what we're facing. And so if you look at it, we've, the, the earth has warmed about 1.2 degrees since pre-industrial times. And if you look at the current trajectory, um, we're on a path to 2.4 to 2.8 degrees of warming by the year 2100. And now if you're not massively into climate change science, those numbers can sound like a small increase. Yeah. It doesn't sound too crazy. We've all experienced going somewhere that's slightly warmer than, than, where, yeah. than where we are, especially being from Northern England. Um, but the that that is such a huge temperature rise um, when you speak to climate scientists and you look at what that could mean for the actual world if yeah. we were to live in those conditions. And so getting to that level, say 2.5 degrees of warming would get us past what, what, what many scientists call like climate tipping points. And these are thresholds that make action to reverse course, exceptionally difficult, i.e. ice caps melting, sea levels rising, permafrost thawing out and releasing methane into the atmosphere. Once we get past that, there's no kind of reversing that, at least not easily. Yeah. I was uh, watching something over the weekend from um, uh, Woodwell Climate um, Research Institute and uh, the main um, uh, climate scientist there, Dr. Phil Duffy, said that, and it's quite stark this, that if we stopped burning fossil fuels altogether today, it would take another 300 years for the planet to start to cool. So that's if we stopped doing any, anything today, yeah. basically. Yeah. Obviously not an option um, to stop, but it illustrates how long these things will take to unwind if we keep going. And so the wait and see and delay, uh, you know, tactic or approach that a lot of people still do take, because this always seems like a far out thing that we have time to solve by the year 2100. But we need to take bold action today, because otherwise it's going to take us hundreds of years to unwind it if we ever can. Yeah, and the cost becomes 
more and more and more. Yeah. You know, yeah. the trouble is, is that it's the, it's the classic thing of any any sort of project, isn't yeah. it? Is the the quicker that you need to do something, the more expensive it's going going to be. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think the the issue with this is that it so easily gets knocked off the top of the agenda in in developed markets, particularly. Yeah. So you know, we had the situation in the UK where Rishi Sunak was originally not going because mm. he had better things to do. Yesterday he's there making a speech saying how it's the right thing to do to to, to stick to climate commitments. Yeah. But you know, I think I think the I think the that's the issue that you've got with this is a, it's a, it's sort of invisible to most of the developed countries. I mean, we, you know, had a heat wave in London. Yeah. It got got a bit hot for a couple of weeks, but you know, the the effect of of this in other parts of the world is you get huge flooding, you get huge extreme weather events, and that that average temperature movement of only yeah. a degree higher is not that. The whole world gets a degree warmer and it stays one degree warmer flat. Yeah. Is it is it the, the extreme weathers become more frequent yeah. and more extreme? Yeah. And therefore, you know, with any average it's pulled by the extremes and that's what that's yeah. what that's what's happening. We've talked about something uh, we've not we've not talked about talking about it on the podcast today, but we talked about BBC Question Time from last week and how much disinformation there seemed to be on that programme, unchecked about climate change and that extreme weather uh, events were not increasing was what one individual on that programme was saying, which is completely ridiculous. And you've had the similar thing in the UK and other countries over the past few years about experts being bemoaned and that modelling, all modelling is incorrect and should not be trusted. And that's come from a lot of the modelling that was done from economists about Brexit originally, which yeah. was proven one way or another to be to be incorrect. And then the modelling about COVID cases. So now the, the thing that's taken hold in the UK is that all modelling and all experts and everything shouldn't be trusted. However, we've talked about this previously on a previous podcast, but the climate science from the 90s, 1970s and 80s have been some of the most accurate scientific projections we've ever made. And you can see... Even this year, so it's always, it's all, I'm always hesitant to highlight individual years and what happens in years, but because that can be deemed as weather. Yeah. But obviously, long term changes in weather is what the climate is, and we can all see this year there's been inc- uh, instances of extreme weather: the floods in Pakistan, the droughts in Bangladesh, and we even had wildfires in the UK this summer. Yeah. Um, and so, if you look at what one point, sorry, uh, two point five degrees of warming can do, here's three examples of what the current climate science is showing for three different parts of the world in different scenarios. So if we have 2.5 degrees uh, uh, of, uh, of, um, of warmer weather, Riyadh in Saudi Arabia would experience 35 more days of 32 degrees heat or above per year. It's a huge jump uh, of what they in an already very very hot climate, which is struggling from climate change. A little bit closer to, to the UK, parts of Spain would experience thirty days of wildfire per year versus the nine they have today. So that's a huge jump. Yeah. Um, and uh, a final one: parts of southern Africa would go from a seventeen percent chance of extreme drought per year to thirty-two percent. So basically, a doubling of the chance of extreme drought. So these are massive impacts on millions, hundreds of millions of people's lives from what on the surface seems like a small degree jump in yeah. in, in a temperature. Yeah, and I think the other thing there is that you say that, that in a two degree. <clears throat> Uh, warmer world that you'd have 420 million more people exposed to record heat yeah and and then what that what the knock-on effect of that is so it's the destruction of livelihoods it's yeah. the destruction of 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 homes and and towns and villages and yeah. countries by higher sea levels and you know we'd see an, an ice-free arctic once a decade rather than once every hundred years wow. that's with two degrees we're already projected to be yeah way above that yeah so um, 
you know, we're saying that effectively there seems to be a, an acknowledgement that one one point five degrees is gone. Yeah, we're we're already well over this two degree thing, which sounds pretty destructive in itself. And I think the new message is that every fraction of a degree counts, mm. yeah, which yeah, yeah. is not as catchy as keep <laughs> one point five alive. But you it's, know, it feels like counting away the fractions, doesn't it, into the future? Yeah, it, it feels like a sort of it feels like uh, you know. Well, it is. It's minimising your loss, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's- well, this is the, in researching for this episode and looking at the build-up to COP, for the first, this COP, I mean, for the first time I, I, I've seen and we've seen looking at it, all the language around adaptation and mitigation, it's no longer about, it seems like it's no longer about stopping it. Yeah. It's about, it's happening. And what do we do about that thing that's yeah. happening? Um, so, yeah, I think it's... Uh, so, that's just to, to, to kind of re- re-establish where we are in terms of what the climate science is showing us and what it, what it's looking like based on um, the current projections. I think it's good to have a chat about what has happened since Glasgow, so Glasgow yeah. COP26, because I think that ended on a high. We had this breakthrough. We had this reaffirming of the commitment to 1.5. But I well, don't... Well, I, Alex Sharma was crying at the end of it, so crying. I'm not sure how, Happiness how on a high he felt at the end of it. No. But I think it felt like there was a... It looked like nothing was going to happen on that. Yes. That one. And yeah, then there, yeah. was a, there was a breakthrough at the end. And it was all sort of very last minute, which a lot of these... Yeah. You know, a lot of, a lot of things... A lot of big conference, you know, big political things. This is what they're like, you know. This sort mm. of nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, and then, yeah, and then you get some sort of breakthrough. I've heard someone describe it as a lot like, you know, the the meetings of the USA and the USSR during the Cold War, right. whereas you'd have yeah, these yeah, yeah. people turn up to these negotiations, nothing would happen, nothing would happen, and then every now and then they'd get a breakthrough, yeah. and you know, ultimately they did stop an all-out yeah. nuclear war. Um, you know, and that's sometimes it can feel like these things are just very slow and nothing happening. But we ca- we have seen as well, you know, during COVID, during extreme times, that governments can act quick and they can yeah. deploy capital and they can make significant changes and significant interventions where required. So, yeah. you know, that's a sort of another little bit of hopefulness is yeah. that, you know, while there's other things filling the headlines, it may feel like nothing's happening on this, but actually big steps can be taken. You can have a long mm. time where nothing much happens and then you can have a very short time where a lot happens and yeah. maybe maybe we're holding out for a few of those short times where a lot happens yeah. at some point. Yeah, and hopefully we get that at this, at this one. I think that, you know, that's how Glasgow COP26 ended and it's not been the best year in the run-up to COP27 because set against the background of every nation, especially developed nations, understanding they're going to have to invest a lot of money, whether that's in helping poorer nations or just within their own economies. You've had a situation over the last you know, 12 months where there's now the war, um, the invasion of, of Ukraine from Russia, that's, that's reintroduced inflation into the global economic system, We're having a cost of living crisis in the UK and many other countries and, and an energy price crisis in the UK and many other countries. So set against that backdrop, it seems that climate because of the geopolitical issues that we face, um, has taken a backseat in a lot of pe- a lot of people's minds in the build-up and, to and this. And even, even worse than a backseat, because under the guise of energy security, there's a lot of reversal of, yeah. of you know, there's now a clam- clamouring of, of developed nations to pump more of their own oil, to, to try and get more of their own gas out, out of the ground, to, to, to take their reliance off Russian energy. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's, 
climate's taken a very much a backseat to let's bring let's bring the cost of energy down by yeah. trying to get more of our own supplies on stream. Yeah, and you've got then going into this conference, which is all about all the big nations in the world and all the small nations in the world coming together to agree a path forward. But you've got situations where a bunch of countries basically aren't speaking to each other. Yeah, and you've got you've got you've got countries not speaking to each other, and you've got you know Vladimir Putin's not going to turn up at COP. Chinese president's not going to turn up at a COP. I mean, there's going to be delegations from those countries, yeah. but there's, they're not, they're not uh, you know, it's not a coming together of world leaders to solve the issue. No. So like, set against that, against that backdrop, you've seen in the build-up to COP27, increasing, you know, news and research come out basically saying, you know, is ask, either asking the question or just saying it, is 1.5 degrees now dead? It's fully baked in and a lot of scientists' models, they don't see a way of, of avoiding that. And if so... What's the path forward? So I've seen, seen a lot of people then talking about the only way forward is uh, negative emissions in the future, in yeah. the near future. So carbon removal and sequestration, if I can get that Easy word out. Easy for you to say. <laughs> very, very difficult. Stumbled <laughs> over that majorly. Um, so carbon removal and that other word on what is seen as like a massively unrealistic scale versus where those industries are up to and yeah. how much money's been you know devoted to those industries. It's not to say that in our wildest dreams, they couldn't get there. Yeah. But the the levels of, of of removal that people are talking about are nowhere near where the industry's up to. A guy called Daniel Schrag, who um, is an earth scientist at Harvard, who was uh, the White House scientific advisor during Barack Obama's presidency, he came out and said, it's it's completely outside the realm of technology. And it's it's not completely outside the realm of technology and politics and economics, but is it feasible? Kind of, I guess. But it's so far from reality that it's also absurd, Yeah, is what yeah. he said about removal. Um, and so we've got to pull down enough carbon to cool the planet by a tenth of a degree of Celsius would cost us around $22 trillion. Yeah. If the price to remove it was $100. Yeah, and which put, is, that, put that into context. Yeah. Is, they set this target of developed uh, countries contributing a hundred billion a year, and they keep missing that target. So, to put that in the context of twenty-two trillion, <laughs> bear in mind, a hundred billion on a global scale is not yeah. a huge amount no. of money. The, the UK government spends about double that on the NHS every year. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> they're struggling to cobble together the money yeah. here to to start to uh, really meaningfully make any changes. So, you know, and and, and on that sequestration. Um, point you, is, you can say that word. I can been practicing. I, I can have been practicing. Yeah, <laughs> but Bill Gates <laughs> said he spends six. That that twenty two trillion is based on a hundred dollars. Yeah, per ton. And Bill Gates uh, says when he he uh, does direct air capture to offset his his travel, it costs him around six hundred dollars per ton. <laughs> so you know we talk about being a climate aligned investor, being about investing yep. of the technologies of the future that at scale will solve these problems. But these technologies have got a long way to go before they become economically viable um, at scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, they come across as a little bit of like Hail Marys. It seems like the bit of like actually just transitioning our energy mm. to, you know, more clean forms of energy, investing in battery power, invest, you know, weaning ourselves off oil, weaning ourselves off other types of uh, fossil fuels, that seems to have gone. Mm. It seems to be now that, well, we're going to we're going to do that, but over a much longer period of time than than is really uh, you know sensible. Yeah. And in the meantime, we'll try and we'll try and see if there's any possibilities of these like hail mary like tech innovations that will just 
bail us out. Bail us out later, yeah. later without on. any change. The, <clears throat> the other, what seems like even more of a hail mary, is I've seen a lot of people talking about geoengineering. Properly yeah. seems like for the first time at this scale from credible kind of news sources, the idea of seeding the atmosphere with reflective chemicals to cool the earth, that seems like a bit too far. Well, to the me. issue with that is, do you know what, you know, this is geoengineering is basically messing about with the environment mm. to try and try and hack it so that it, so that uh, the heat from the sun isn't as, you know, doesn't warm up the atmosphere as much. Well, do you know what the knock-on effects of that are on anything? Yep. <clears throat> Who controls that? You know, yeah. who who has the power of how much of whatever we put in the atmosphere we put in or we take out or how can it even be taken out at a later date? Yeah. You know, that seems like there's not only the technological problem, but there's also the sort of political problem yeah. of and and then all the knock on effects and the sci- you know, it's it's a it's a real sort of science in its infancy. Yeah. Um and it's being talked about as maybe maybe that will happen at some point to yeah. solve our problem. So yeah. Um, it seems like clutching at straws are those two, but so what, what do we think we can hope for? What's the best out of COP27? Well, you mentioned it a minute ago, was that the reaffirming of that 100 billion annual climate finance fund from the, from the, um, from the richest nations, which they continue to miss. So that I think people are hoping for a, a proper, you know, um, commitment to that and not just a commitment, but actually hit it in the future. Yeah. Um, and then I've seen, we've seen for the, it seems like, What's taking hold is this idea of a, a proper loss and damage fund for for, for rich nations to fund <clears throat> poor nations and help them adapt and yeah. uh, to to what's coming their way. You mentioned the 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 prime minister of Barbados in her speech yesterday. She was or on Sunday. She was um she was proposing that we we do like a a globally coordinated windfall tax on energy companies on yeah. the 2 billion 200 billion of profit 10% Antonio of Gutierrez that. actually said the same right. same thing as right. um you know head of the UN so he you know he's he's standing up there as as a as a senior figure yeah. you know and and saying that we should do a, a a global windfall tax on the fossil fuel companies um and use the money to help people with their energy bills like is being used yep. in the UK but also to to invest in climate solutions in developing markets as well yeah so those two things um obviously there's the IMF estimates that <clears throat> developing developing countries need 2.5 trillion of external financing annually until 2030 uh, to meet the Paris Agreement and uh, sustainable development goals there's some sums that don't add up here my maths isn't the best but 100 billion <laughs> I know. Versus 2.5 <laughs> trillion. Yeah. yeah. So I think 100 billion is the, the lowest of the low that we could even hope for that's not being committed. The actual need is much, much higher. Yeah. But I think people are just going into this hoping to get any commitment they can that's meaningful out of the, the richest nations to help the poorest nations. Yeah. And then, as we've said before, try and commit to limiting the warming now to say 1.6 or 1.7 yeah. versus 1.5, which I think a lot of people have missed. Uh, a lot of people agree has been missed. And so I think that's what people are hoping for from this. But it's going to be interesting to see if anything concrete comes out of it versus what we thought was concrete from the last one. Yeah, I think outside of COP as well, I think the interesting things to look at are you've got US midterm elections mm. happening today. Um, you know, it looks like that the Democrats are going to lose control of Congress. Yeah, They may keep control of the Senate. Um, maybe we'll discuss that later point in time. Yeah. But, you know, not only does it look like the Republicans will take control, but the Republican candidates are all Trump uh, candidates, you know, extremist, 
candidates, basically. Yeah. Um, so how does that affect the narrative of what's going on in the US? Yeah. The other thing you've got in the UK is is obviously the autumn statement, which was the thing that Rishi Sunak said was more important than him going to COP in the first place. That's next week. Yeah. What I think will be interesting <clears throat> is to see whether any of the climate climate commitments are reflected in mm-hmm. th- that, that budget. Yeah. That's the test. You can stand on a stage and, and say, this is yeah. important, it's a moral duty, blah, blah, blah. But you've got to put your money where your mouth is. And yes, we're in difficult economic time. You know, we've cost the country 50 billion with a with a, a real basket case of a of a budget uh, not too long ago. Yeah. Is there going to be any meaningful investment? Is there going to be any meaningful change in the, the tax and spend of the UK to address what we're saying is an important issue yeah. of climate of climate change. So yeah. that will be two interesting things in the next week yeah. that will that will come out, I think. And interestingly, the, uh, the, the at least controversial character and former climate change tech entrepreneur Elon Musk has admitted that he's voting for the Republicans in the in the midterm, which kind of conflicts with his climate change stance, but <laughs> Yeah, if, if the climate change stance was if ever was real. Ever real, yeah. Cheers, Elon. Um <laughs> so how do we think about all of this? As, a, as an investor, as an impact investor, Matthew. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we, we've we've talked about this before, and you know, this this doesn't change the messaging that we've that we stuck to for you know for since we started doing this podcast, which is you know, as an investor, you're investing globally, uh, you're investing for the long term, and you're investing in a diversified way. That's how you should be thinking about this. This, I think, if you are looking at your investment portfolio, you should understand where and how it's exposed to climate change, yep. both in terms of the companies you're invested in, but just in terms of risk to you as an investor. Yep. You know, Going back to ESG that we talked about last week, that's all about understanding the environmental risk on your portfolio. Um, you know, you can you can do that as a very, very, very first step is understanding yep. that. I think the next thing is then, you know, if you want to take an active stance as an individual, I think you should make sure that your investments are aligned uh, to having a positive impact on, yep. on climate and and by doing so, I think you are, if you're doing it in a, divide, in a diversified way, in a sensible way, I think you are naturally going to be exposed to these some of these long-term technological-based solutions. Yes. And I'm not just talking about the Hail Mary ones. I'm talking no. about the more the, real. the more standard and real ones. Um, you know, and I think you can do your bit and align for that future. You can do your you do your bit, but also you're aligning your money with that future change, and therefore with a with a world that's adapting towards. Yeah. Uh, you know, trying to tackle climate change in some way. Yeah. I also think the other thing you can do as an individual, we've talked about it before about, you know, you've got two votes effectively. You've got your vote politically and you've got your vote with where you, where you invest your money. I think you can actually just try and keep this top of the, of the political agenda. Yeah. You know, you need, you need the private sector, you need politics and you as an individual can do your, whatever you can do within your limited remit. But, you know, as an individual, you can, keep the pressure on politicians, keep the pressure on um, the agenda to keep yeah. climate change at the top of that list. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, re- I think it's really easy to be uh, short-term pessimistic when it comes to the climate, given COP, given the media, given the news coverage. But I think people can take heart in the, in the, in the fact that you're already doing something very active about it yeah. by investing in yeah, uh, your, your money and these companies of the future that are already tackling these problems at scale. And so I think that's good for, for you as an individual, but also good for the wider world. Yeah, and look, and, and keeping that pressure on actually does make a change. Look, yeah. the only reason Rishi Sunak is at COP27 right now yeah. is because the media turned on him. 
yeah. when he said he wasn't going. Yep. So that pressure on politicians, they do react. Yeah. In the UK as well, you've got this short window now where there's going to be an election within the next two years at some point. And the more that people keep the climate on the agenda, mm-hmm. the more that will the more progress will be made yep. in the UK. Yeah, 100%. Good place to wrap up. Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Impact Investing from Circa 5000. Thank you for listening to Impact Investing, a podcast brought to you by Circa 5000. Remember, when investing, your capital is at risk, and this podcast is not financial advice. If you like what you hear, then please remember to like, subscribe, and share the podcast.